Everyday, ordinary people living extraordinary lives. For the next few minutes, join me as I introduce you to some of them. Right, so now there was a label that actually identified what I had and there were solutions to remedy that issue. I'm B. Moore, and welcome to 52 Conversations. Education in America is a fundamental right. But what if you're unable to learn the way most people do? Our next guest proves that with the right influences, you still can go very far. I'm Dr. Imad Rahim. I'm an endowed professor and chair at Bellevue University and co-founder of Intelligent HQ. Thank you for being on the program, Dr. Rahim. I want to start by talking a little bit about your background because you're a product of the Syracuse City School District, and there was a time when you weren't, uh, even though you're a doctor now, you weren't necessarily the greatest student. And I want to talk a little bit about that transformation and what took place. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, I, I came to this country as a, uh, as a refugee uh, from the killing fields of Cambodia, um, first generation student. Um, my mother did not graduate high school. She uh, dropped out, I think third grade to work on the farm to help her family. So no one in my family is educated and we came here with nothing. Lived in the projects on uh, South Ave, uh, lived in Section 8 housing. I went to Frazier, Grant, and middle school. So English was a second language to me. Um, I also experienced um, a lot of external things happening like violence at the house. Uh, we were struggling economically so Poverty was always an issue in the house, and I also uh, was struggling with learning disability. Um, so when you combine all those things, when you combine poverty, violence, learning disability, school was the last thing on your mind, right? So if you're struggling at home, you're hungry at home, you come to work, the last thing you're thinking about is education. Really, really the school was a safe place away from the house, right? Um, and because no one could not understand what I was dealing with and I could not articulate that. I, um, you know, I, I, I struggled with other students, I struggled with teachers, I got into fights, um, did not have a parent to help me at home with my homework, so I struggled academically. Um, I remember in first grade I failed and I had no idea that I failed. Like my, my, my mother didn't know I failed. So when I came to school the next day, I followed my classmates into second grade thinking you know, I'm going to second grade. And the teacher looked up my information and was like, you're not in this classroom. And she brought me to first grade. And I was like, I already completed first grade. But she's like, you failed first grade. Did you not know? Right? So that was, you know, that was a huge awakening for me, even at first grade, to know that, um, that I had failed and no one in my family knew that, that I did not know that, that the, the school um, was not able to communicate that information to me. So high school... Middle school, elementary school was a huge struggle for me. Um, the turning point for me was actually towards the back end of high school that I was in 10th grade, actually towards the end of 10th grade, so we're entering 11th grade now, and I had gotten to multiple fights, um, was, was put on academic probation. Um, they were actually considering sending me to bid, which was like a weapons school at the time, um, and a man by the name of Willie Dardell, who was an administrator, pulled me aside and gave me a second chance. And I was actually told by 
an academic advisor, someone that I had trust, someone that I had um, uh, developed a relationship throughout the years, tell me there was no way I was going to graduate high school. You know, so here I was, two years left uh, at Fala High School, and this academic advisor that I trusted was telling me to drop out of school and get my GED. Because even with two years, there was no way that I can complete school. So she was giving up on me, right? And, and it felt like everybody else was giving up on me, my teachers, the administrators. And then all of a sudden, Willie Dardell gave me this lifeline, right? And not only did he give me a lifeline, he became my mentor. He pushed me, right? So he was like, not only is he saying, I want to give you a second chance, but he's saying, here's the tools, right? Here's how you do it, right? If you meet me halfway, I will make sure you graduate. And that's what he did, right? So I spent the last two years of high school in a program called OLC, Occupational Learning Center. It was a, um, a non-regents diploma, uh, kind of a step above a GED, but I graduated. And this man was pushing me every step of the way, show up at my house when I didn't show up to school, right? Was well informed by the teachers, how I was doing, you know, what was lacking. Um, told me to uh, go to his office after school and do my homework there, so I had no excuse. Right on the weekends, we would spend time boxing, um, going to the gym, sometimes even New York City to buy clothes, just so I'm away from the streets. Right, so I'm focused. Yeah, so I, I, I owe a lot of my public high school success, at least at the towards the back end, to to a teacher, to an educator, to an administrator, someone that was willing to give me a lifeline and give me that second chance. So, after that, what made you decide to pursue education? Well, <laughs> I think for a lot of people, um, education was, was all we had, right? And in Syracuse, it's community college, right? So, I'm not saying that I graduated high school and everything opened up. I had no idea what an SAT was, right? And, and once I figured out what an SAT was, because no one was telling us what an SAT was, I realized it was too late. Um, we couldn't afford it. And given my learning disability and my um, prior experience in taking tests, um, that I, I knew there was no way that I could successfully pass an SAT. Um, so I went to Onondaga Community College, but it was actually Willie Dowdell that pushed me. And was as soon as I graduate, the first thing he said was, congratulations, what's next? Right, so he was, so he was always looking at the next step, right? He was not, you know, he was always saying, you know, what's in front of you is not good enough. It's what's five years from now. That's what's, you know, and then after that, five years after that, right? So it's always looking ahead. Um, and he pushed me to community college. Uh, what I realized when I went to community college, all my friends were there, right? So it's like everyone that did graduate high school, that got their GED, um, ended up at Onondaga Community College. Um, and it was a new experience for me, right? Um, in college, no one is is pushing you in, in that in that way, right? No one is showing up at your house to make sure you, you stay, that you came to class, right? No one, it, you don't have an academic advisor that, that constantly is on you making sure that everything is going accordingly, right? You don't have a, um, you don't have an administrator, right, that's pushing you. So in college, I, I approached it like 13th grade, right? It was like another high school experience. And, and, and I made poor decisions, right? I, I skipped class. I remember playing spades in the hallway, you know, um, not going to my tutoring, uh, failing classes and just retaking them over and over. And a, for a lot of us, it was just a way to get out, right? Something new, something, something um, that is providing us a different option. But we didn't have really, we didn't have any orientation, right? There was no program to to help us transition 
from high school to what is expected in a college environment, at least not when I went there, right? And um, I actually was at community college for almost four years. So we're talking about a two-year school. I was there for almost four years, um, still nowhere close to completing my associates. I was actually placed on academic probation uh, twice, lost my EOP scholarship, lost my Pell grant, and it was really my wife that pushed me. You know, that, that basically was like, you need to figure things out. You need to push forward. You could do this. Um, and like most young people that grew up in the inner city, I was also working like three jobs. So working three jobs, going to school, trying to figure things out. Um, I had just gotten married. I was taking care of my mother, my siblings, and our wife. So you add all, all of this, it, it made it very difficult to focus on education. But it was a, a conversation with with a professor at OCC that considered my entire situation as a whole. You know, he looked at the type of work I was doing. He looked at all the family and community obligations I had at the table. And he said, you know what? Community college may not be for you. Not saying that college is not for you, but community college, traditional college, may not be for you. And he discussed um, Empire State College, which was a SUNY university that provided non-traditional learning. So it provided an opportunity for adult students that may be working, that may have um, community obligations and family obligations and can't commit to a full-time campus experience to pursue the education by way of distance learning, um, weekends, evenings, independent study, and those type of things. So I was able to get my grades from a D and F to a C, um, and luckily was able to transfer and got into SUNY Empire State College. Right? And it was in SUNY Empire State College that I found my footing in higher education because all of a sudden things started changing, things started shifting. Um, for example, I talked about um, my learning disability. But no one explained to me what that learning disability was, right? It was a quick label. And as soon as you label someone, you give them an excuse. You give them an excuse to say, I can't do it, right? Because of this, right? Because of this illness, because of this disability, I can't do it. They're telling me I can't do it, right? So when I was um, labeled with a learning disability, I was put in special education. I was put in, um, in a resource room. I did all of these extra tutoring, but no one could explain what this was and what the solution was, right? Um, but it was at Empire State College where I took several tests to get into the program and took more tests um, in a writing class for, for them to tell me, you do have a learning disability, but it's dyslexia, right? So now there was a label that actually identified what I had and there were solutions to remedy that issue, right? So once they told me I was dyslexic, they also told me this is a great thing because now you know you can learn, you just learn different, right? So it's not them saying you now are labeled with something else and this is a, a disability that, that will cripple you. What they are saying is that you can learn, you just learn different. And all of a sudden the doors opened up, right? All of a sudden I realized I am better learning independently. I am better learning at my own pace. I am better learning 
by way of kinesthetic, you know, multiple options, whether it's um, a mixture of reading, audio, you know, visual, all these things, right? I just can't sit in the classroom with, with 100 other students and listen to a lecture for another hour and 45 minutes, especially when I can't even read my own handwriting, right? So I'm taking notes, and because I'm dyslexic, I, my, my handwriting was awful to begin with. And I didn't know that there were ways I could write and, and, and connect it with images and language to where I could visually grab it later on. Right um, or utilize technology like my cell phone to record lectures and things like that and listen to it later on. So at Empire State College, once I was given this label as um, and being dyslexic, and, and and given the tools and the support to to succeed, I went from a D and C student to an A student to a B plus student. Right, and then it just started accelerating. Right, yeah. That's kind of the external factors that you were dealing with, but there was an intrinsic factor as well. And one of the things that I know about you, uh, just having met you, you know, very recently, is that you're very entrepreneurial, and that that's has kind of weaved itself into your educational experience. And can you talk about that weaving of the entrepreneurial spirit that yeah. you have? I I think a lot of um, I I don't want to say poor people, but disadvantaged people have an entrepreneurial spirit because we had so many doors shut in front of us, right? Um, and, and, and because of that, we, we, we try to find multiple streams of income, right? We, we, we can't depend on one stream, right? Um, because those are often inconsistent, right? And, and they may not um, support us financially the way we need to. So I find that a lot of my peers that I grew up with, they were always practicing entrepreneurship, but they just didn't know it, right? They, they were hustlers, right? Um, and, and by way of hustlers, I'm not saying they, they were all drug dealers. I'm saying that they hustle clothes, right? They hustle music. They, they hustle parties, right? So even in high school, you know, my friends were, were promoters of parties. They sold mixtapes. Um, you know, they sold clothing, whether it's bootleg or whatever, right? They did that. Um, so we all had this entrepreneurial spirit. So in high school, I, I used to sell mixtapes. I, I was a, a local DJ, and at 16, 17, I was DJing at fraternity houses at SU and Lemoyne. Um, I was doing block parties. I was on the radio, and I was selling mixtapes at you know at lunchtime at Fowler, Hennigan, Corcoran. You know, I would show up at lunchtime and just slang my mixtapes. So I had always had this entrepreneurial spirit in me, and when I was growing up, I, I've experienced multiple doors. Uh, shutting in front of me, um, especially given that I didn't have the um, the ability to articulate uh, who I am, uh, my background. So my interviews were often off, you know, pretty awful, right? Um, so in in college, I took on that same entrepreneurial spirit, right? That that while I worked at a certain job, I've always looked at opportunities to create new jobs for myself, and 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 that led me to to co-found. A non-for-profit called the Human Service Association, co-found uh, Intelligent HQ, co-found Global I-365, and, and these were with business partners that I networked, uh, that I developed great relationships with, and we saw that our skills could be put together to produce something great, to produce something worthwhile. So while I was going to school, I did these things, and when I graduated with my doctorate, it just it just it was just a natural progression. That I continued 
to to teach entrepreneurship, promote entrepreneurship, work with entrepreneurs and startup uh, founders to produce something that's more sustainable. Having been a product of mentorship, you've decided to pay it forward and become a mentor yourself. Yes. Talk a little bit about how you mentor and how you approach mentoring. Well, you know, mentoring is is very different. I, I think, I, you know, it's very different in regards to the people you mentor. Um, I think people's perspective of mentorship um, is very different and what they need is very different. So I, I try to make sure that when I take on the responsibility of mentoring someone that I can give them my time, that I can commit to supporting them and helping them. So I, I try not to say yes to everyone, um, especially if I feel this person is not ready for it. And when I say ready for it, um, you know, some people, they just want a job, right? So they, they approach me and they ask me to mentor them, but then they tell me they're just looking for a job, right? And mentorship is really, you have to be ready to, to mature, right? Mentorship is, is, is a way of maturity, it's a way of progression, and you have to be able to put your pride aside and put in the hard work to listen to these recommendations, uh, listen to these solutions, listen to these um, um, opportunities that are put in front of you and be able to work towards them. Right? I, I'm not gonna say, hey, I'm, I'm gonna make a call for you. Right? So, so if you came to me and say, hey, I need a job, whatever, whatever, I can't make a call for you and open the doors for you because I'm not confident in your ability to utilize those opportunities. So I can't say I can help you find a job if you are not ready to help yourself find a job, right? If you are not mature enough and ready enough to do these things, then, then who am I to, to put my, you know, my profession on the line, to put you know, my um, integrity on the line to recommend you when you are not ready yet, when you are actually asking for a handout? Right? I respect people that, that, that come to me and articulate themselves in a way that, that lets me know that they're ready in regards to this is my ambition, this is my drive, this is, this is where I want to be, this is what I'm doing. Right? So they're not saying mentor me. What they're saying is I'm involved in all these things. Are you interested in being a part of it? Because right? mentorship is a partnership. Right? You can't come to me and be an opportunist. You, you should come to me and look at developing a relationship with me, right? Because we have to make sure that that relationship is good and works in order for the mentorship to be successful, right? So when I, when I talk about mentoring, often I'm mentoring people all over the country. And sometimes it's remote, sometimes it's face-to-face, -face, right? Sometimes I, I may be meeting with them once a month or every other month when I'm at a certain location. But one thing that they all have in common is that they respect my time, right? So when they meet with me, they have a list of things, not, that, not, not to, to ask me these things, right? So they're not going to meet with me and say, hey, I have all these things I need from you, right? What they are saying is this, this is what I'm up to. This is what I am doing, right? And these are the roadblocks I'm hitting. And most importantly, these are the solutions I have found. Can you, can you please support me in figuring out which solution is better? Right? And this is why this is key, because it tells me this person is, is, is meeting me halfway, right? that, that they have gone the extra mile to change their lifestyle, to change their way of doing things, right? and actually moving forward 
and then they they hit a roadblock right or or they or at a turning point they're kind of unsure which direction to move towards and now they're not asking me for something they're asking me for advice right so they're not asking me to to give them something they're asking me for an advice but on top of that what they are saying is that listen I also did some research and I have these options right so they, they went that extra mile again and they did research and they're not saying give me an answer they're saying I found multiple answers can you please provide me with some support and some assistance to figure out which answers the best right and and I learned you know I, I learned um, this this way of mentoring from the 10-minute manager in the book great great wonderful read um, and basically that's what he what what the 10-minute manager was saying was that this manager who only managed people for 10 minutes really he was mentoring them right he was more effective than the manager that was micromanaging their employees for eight hours a day within the 10 minutes what he did was he kinda made his employees be more proactive right I pay you to find solutions to problems that's why managers hire employees they hire you because of your talent right but if you are always coming to me with problems and telling me or asking me what are the solutions then then you don't have an answer to any of these problems so why am I working with you why did I hire you right so a good employee or a good mentee goes the extra mile and comes to me when they have done their research when they say hey I, I hit this roadblock I have this problem but I spent the last few days looking at all these solutions right and I have five solutions that seem to look really good and I would like your recommendation that makes it a lot quicker a lot smoother but also lets me know that they are being proactive so it's about engagement it's about and, and from your perspective it's more about really refining those potential solutions that they the mentee has approached you with exactly and you know and I see a a disconnect um, you know with the Millennials um, but also with you know with some people even in, in my age group right that that because of, of social media because of tools like LinkedIn they don't want to develop relationships right they look at your profile they look at your videos they look at your publications they connect with you on Facebook or by LinkedIn or by Twitter and the first thing they want is help right they want you to assist them they want you to provide the solution for them they want you to open doors for them and they're not willing to develop any relationships right and as soon as you say I can't do that then they get upset and you know they don't understand that this environment is not for that right LinkedIn is a network right let, 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 me, let me explain LinkedIn is a social media network for professionals but the key wording is network network means develop a relationship develop a bond develop a friendship right and when we talk about networking it's not about looking at ways I can help you but also look at ways you can help me right because that's what a relationship is it's a give and take right it's a give and give but it's not just take 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 so those people that I respect those people that I have continued to mentor those people that um, have continued to mentor me it's because we have an established relationship and a meaningful relationship because it's ongoing 
and they and, and they would find things and they would connect with me and say, listen, I found this great opportunity. You should look into that. So they would contact me just for the simple fact that they found something that they thought that that it could benefit me versus always contacting me to look for ways for something to benefit them. Right. And I would do the same thing for them. Right. So that's what what should happen. That's what needs to happen. Now, you're an author as well, and I just kind of want to shift because you had mentioned that you wrote a book. And can you tell me a little bit about the book that you wrote and what it focuses on? Yeah, I wrote a few books. Um, you know, but writing a book was really to, uh, I think initially, was really to uh, prove people wrong, right? Being dyslexic, I was, you know, I, my writing was always horrible. Even when I got A's, there was a lot of editing. There was a lot of proofreading, right? There was a lot of support from the teacher, from my tutor, from my wife, right? And Microsoft's, you know, spell check was a lifesaver, right? So I've always struggled with writing and spelling and things like that. So when I had the opportunity to write a book and it got published, it was like, you know, the door just opened, like a huge light bulb just hit. And I initially did it to prove people wrong, but I found a love for writing. And, I, and it was crazy to hear and see people reading and buying my books. Um, so my latest book was three years in the making. It probably took me the longest. And it's not just, you know, it's not the writing that took me the longest. It, it was the development. It was the editing. It was the, the roadblocks in regards to hearing my own story on paper and trying to figure out how to say it in a way that was genuine, right? So the, the recent book is called Resilience from killing fields to boardroom, right? Um, and, and, and what it is, is really a memoir that is also a help book at the same time. I didn't want to write a bio, right? I, I, I felt like bios provide an inspirational story um, that motivates people, that get people to learn about the authors, but I wanted a book that helped people learn about themselves while listening to my story, right? So, so the book follows what I created called the SALT model. Right. The SALT model stands for survival, adapting, love, and transformation. And these are the models that help me become successful. So the book is a memoir while each chapter tells a story in my life, something that I experienced, but it connects to the SALT model and asks the reader to reflect on their own life using that model. Right. So one of the stories, for example, I talked about my survival, how I came to this country as a refugee uh, from the killing fields, how I survived the streets, how I survived public education, how I survived an abusive parent. And I talked about survival in a way where I'm trying to teach people that while survival isn't necessary, survival shouldn't be something that we're stuck in. Right. Many people go through life just surviving, and that's not life, right? That's not life. You're just maintaining, and you can never transform yourself and reach your potential if you go through life just surviving. So surviving is a way of life, and it's needed, but now you have to figure out what's the next step, right? And then after I tell my story surviving, I'm asking the reader to journal their survival stories, but also look at how they can utilize this experience to go beyond survival. And that's where they move into adapting, right? Adapting into a new environment, right? You've been surviving in this environment. Now look, now let's talk about ways 
you could adapt into a new environment because you, you already you already told me you can survive you already proved people you can survive but let's move to the next level right and look at an environment that you can adapt that is better for you that's better for your family that is better for your way of life and then when we move to adapting the next thing we have to talk about is how do we utilize the love that we have from our friends from our family from our network from our soul to help transform our life to something great right? and the reason why love is important because we often overlook love right? I can tell you that I would not be the man I am today if it wasn't for the people that love me right? I truly believe that no man is an island people always talk about them being a self-made man every self-made man in their autobiography right you can read any self-made man in their autobiography there's always other people mentioned in that biography that pushed them that mentored them their wife right their father their mother their best friend you know there's always someone there that pushed them that opened doors for them that that supported them that um you know that pushed them when they felt like giving up right so there were there's no self-made people right and even if you don't think of it from a perspective of loving there there's a, a, a social I would say a, a social evolution that happens um, in us and around us based on the people that we develop relationships with right so even if it's not love that friendship right that support you get from a teacher often help open doors make you stronger make you more aware makes you become more educated more experienced to reach those goals right so I put love in there because it's something that is necessary right the last piece is transformation but you can't transform yourself to this new person to this new life if you don't truly understand who you are and love yourself and figure out which people in your network truly loves you genuinely and and, and how can you continue to embrace this love and look at those people that don't love you and don't love what you're doing and start pushing that negative relationship away from you right so that's what the soap model is you know as you were talking about that I was trying to place myself in all of those instances and I could I could draw upon all of those uh, you know surviving adapting love yeah. and transformation as well so I, I think that's a wonderful model I'm sure it's been well received yeah, so far it's you know it's, it's been amazing. I, I I talked about the book at Costa Rica. So I went to another country. I um, you know so you know all the way in Costa Rica they found my book. I've I've spoken at Cal State in Long Beach. I I I've spoken at Cornell University, Six University. You know the book has sold over three thousand since October. And I'm not like a a best-selling author like that. So it, it's very uh, amazing how people are embracing this book and these models and people are actually coming on LinkedIn and saying, hey, I read your book. And I wrote a blog to go through the soul model. So people are actually utilizing what they're learning and they're developing this journal to share. They say, listen, this is my survival mode, right? And they're like, okay, three months from now, I'm going to be adapting mode, right? And this is what I'm doing. And then they like, then they did, uh, another guy who's actually a vice president at a community college, you can follow my book, is actually in the love mode. And he lists all these people that love him and he's explaining why they love him. But he also... He's not listing these people, but he identified people that are negative, in you know, in his life, and he's pushing them away, you know. So people actually utilizing and sharing it. So it's 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 you know it's very humbling. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. 
the last question I want to ask you about just kind of has to do with your background from Cambodia. And I wouldn't notice unless you had told me, but you're Muslim American. Yes. And I want to ask you, you know, what has that meant for you overall and kind of moving forward as we come into this new administration? What does that mean for you, your family, those connected to you going forward and what you've experienced? You know, I, I feel like we're going backwards, right? We're going backwards um, in a way where it's almost like pre-civil rights, right? Where we are now being asked to, to support and defend our human rights, our civil liberties, right? Um, we know that America has always struggled with discrimination, has always struggled with racism. Now I feel like they've been given a green light to say how they truly feel, but also act on it, right? I've been down south, right? i also been up north, right? We know racism is everywhere. But the difference is that while I felt that you may have mistreated me because of my skin color, because of my ethnicity and my religion, you know, but I've never felt that you may actually act on those feelings in a way that could harm physically my family, right? I, I mean, I, I've faced discrimination in a way where I've been into fights, right? Um, and obviously there are people out there that's willing to hurt us. But I think now it's almost like they're given the green light to do whatever they want, right? And because of that, I am more fearful for my family's safety, right? I'm more fearful for more people being discriminated, right? For jobs, um, for opportunities, um, and also it's creating this division, even within our own population, right? That, that this pointing fingers at a certain group, at a certain religion, is also creating a division within those groups saying, well, maybe he's right, right? Or I'm not those people. You always have, no, I'm not, I don't want to say Uncle Tom, but you always will have people that will say, you know what? He's right, and I'm not like those people. Well, the problem in, in saying that and looking at that, they will always see you as the other, regardless of your education, regardless of who you married, regardless of your money. Once they get rid of those people, they're going to get rid of you next because you're still the other. They're going to use you. They're going to take advantage of you. They're going to take advantage of your network. right? And once they're done, they're going to get rid of you also. So you become the scapegoat of whatever they create, whatever they do. I mean... We saw that in Colin Powell, you know, I mean, they kind of ruined his reputation. They used him as a scapegoat, they kicked him to the curb, and they moved on, right? So I think we have to be concerned with these things, but we also have to make sure that we support each other, right? We can't have fights within our own parties, um, within our own group, within our own community when we need to really fight and have one voice towards this issue, right? Regardless of our differences, this is the time we need to come together and, and, and fight for what's right, right? So um, as American Muslim, it's actually the first time I feel less American, I think, right? Because the, the, the values that I grew up with, you know, the last, you know, 30-something years where, where we fought for certain rights, I mean, for to see Obama being president and, and to see all of these global issues come to light and be addressing these things, it feels like we're going backwards, right? This is the first time where I feel like I don't want to travel as much. Right. I don't want to leave my family. Right. Um, 
I am actually thinking about joining the, the you know, the gun association and getting me a pistol permit. You know, things like that. You know, these and, and these are conversations happening all over the place, right? Because people are really afraid of their safety now. I want to just first and foremost thank you for allowing me to talk on on a myriad of issues that's concerning you know yourself in terms of education your background in terms of the mentorship program I mean goodness educator scholar author <laughs> my thank you so much for your time and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today oh you're welcome thank you very much Dr. Rahim's book, Resilience, From Killing Fields to Boardroom, The Salt Effect, can be found online at Amazon.com. If you wish to know more about his personal story, you can find Imad's TEDx talk online as well. 52 Conversations is a production of More About You. Join us next time.